0: I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 88, I'll read the entire psalm before the message. And you might, you might look for verses 1 and 2, verses 9 and 13 as sort of the high points in the psalm where the psalmist does turn to prayer. But consider the effect, the overall effect of this psalm. What is he going through? What are the things that he's experiencing? And in particular, what are his responses to the things that he's experiencing? What are his responses? This is this is God's word, Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do uh, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon, the bottomless pit, the place of the destruction? Um, are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. My companions have become darkness. This is the word God, designed for our edification. The Beatles produced a song, uh, obviously, many, many years ago. Uh, it, had, uh, it had the phrase, um, She's So Heavy, um, in the title. And uh, I'm not going to get into any of the lyrics of the song. I don't remember most of them. But I do remember it was long. It was eight minutes long. And the last half of that song Um, repeated the same musical riff over and over and over again. It didn't fade, it kept going. In fact, there was an increasing white noise that complicated things just a little bit till you could hardly take it anymore. And then, mid-riff, it stopped. Cold. No faith. It was disturbing. And that was the end of that side of the LP. It wasn't until it was produced later digitally that that song was followed up by the light sounds of, here comes the sun. And why do I bring this up? Um, Even unbelievers see something of the grindingness of life and oftentimes the sadness, and they too, along with us, long to see light and sunshine in that process, that ha- a light and happy ending. We want to see that, and yet our lives are oftentimes droning on, even involved in suffering. This psalm gives no relief. This song ends on a very down note, and just leaves us there, cut off. No evidence of the sun shining anywhere. Now, this, uh, my, my purpose tonight is to help people, uh, in the sound of my voice, and I speak to myself as well, to help people deal with the problem of depression in the midst of suffering. And if you don't particularly deal with suffering yourself, have that that as as a part of your life, or the sadness and depression that can go along with it, I hope to equip you to be able to care for others. Remember, you have all goodness and all knowledge so that you can speak effectively to exhort and build up one another. This is part of your discipleship, your building up process. We, as we go through the psalm, also, I want you to notice that there are physical maladies that come up, that, that come into play. There are emotional problems that come into play. As, as in the first place, there is an illness. In the second place, there are friends that, that leave, that just depart, that's just cut off the psalmist. The question is, how do we deal with these things? What is our spiritual response? to these things. These are the three elements or aspects of personhood, the physical and the emotional and the spiritual. And if we truly want to help people, we can neglect none of them. We have to be sensitive in every respect of what is going on in their lives so that we can care for them. And I wanna look at this just a few verses at a time, briefly, and then draw four points of, well, what do we do with this in our own lives and application then? You could say that verses 1 and 2 are the high point, and then it just goes downhill from there. Um, oh Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out. And as we will see, there is a wail of sustained, unanswered prayer for relief. He keeps praying. But as we see in verse 2, fascinating here, there is just one request that the psalmist makes of God. Throughout this entire psalm. And it's in the second verse. There's only one request that he has. And that is to be heard. I cry out. um, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Sometimes. That's all we really want. Is to know that we are heard. To know that God hears us and cares. We find in the the second section verses three through seven that this is a lament, yes, but it is not a lament of sin and the need of forgiveness. It is a lament of suffering. This is the physical aspect of one's being. There is an illness, and listen to the way he describes himself, he's without strength. He's as good as dead. He's got one foot in the grave. He's like one who is dead. He is like one whom God has forgotten. He is suffocating in the deep waters of judgment. When you see waters in a context like this, it's usually referring to the to the judgment of God. He is suffocating. And his response to this physical suffering, he puts all the blame on God. It's all your fault. And he responds in in unsoftened language to the nature of God. The, second, the third section, verses 8 through 12, deal with an emotional loss, it's the loss of friends. He feels, he feels deserted, he is deserted and he feels isolated, rejected, despised. His friend even finds him, his best friend even finds him revolting. You can think of Job and his wife. So how do you deal with this kind of emotional stress? He identifies it as God's fault that I've lost all my friends. Once again, his attitude is, is less than faithful and, and soft uh, towards God. In fact, he goes on to say, I've got one foot in Sheol, on the place for the dead. There's a, there's a sense here that you know he, he believes that there is no afterlife. There's nothing that goes beyond this life. So every loss that he experiences in this life is critical. Every loss is, is not, fails to be buffered by and softened by the hope of heaven. And so when he begins to argue with the Lord in, in verse 9. I call to you, Lord. I call to you. And then verses 10 through 12, he says, Will it do you any good if I die? Is this really what is best for you if I die? What good would my death bring? No one can praise you from the grave. In verses 13 to 18, uh, after unanswered prayer, the one redeeming value is he is still looking to the Lord God. He is praying every morning, but he goes on to complain. I've had I've had a terrible life since my youth. I've never I've never had it good, and yet you still hide your face. I'm alone. I'm abandoned. I suffer in a silence that is so loud it is oppressive, I am assaulted by your wrath like a drowning in flood. And then finally, one final riff that uh, again abruptly stops in the middle of the thought, but literally the last word in the psalm is darkness, In, in the Hebrew it is darkness. My closest friend, darkness. Now this is um, well known as the most bleak of all the Psalms. Uh, it, is, it is a lament that doesn't let up. Um, it ends without hope. And we might very well, and I think, wisely ask, why is it even in the Psalter? Why is it in the Psalter? god places psalm 88 in the Psalter because it does reflect the experience if not the reality of god's people what they what they sense, what they believe is occurring to them even apart from the character of god himself can you imagine singing this you've grown up in, the, in as an israelite you sing this every month or so in, in, the, in, the, in the synagogue in the gathering every, you go over and it's all the, this psalm did not crack the Trinity hymnal. We're yeah. not thinking we should sing it. What do you think about that? We'll see. We'll see. Four lessons then, as we as we consider uh, as we consider this song. The first, the first is this. Don't give up. Don't give up. The psalmist prays. Um, he, um, it is dark in the beginning, it's dark in the end, but he continues to pray. Now, honestly, very few of us would have lives that have this kind of unrelenting and long, uh, lifelong suffering. But some do. Some who you might not even be aware of do have lifelong suffering. Often accompanied by a, a, a depression, the same, the same riff over and over and over again without relief. John Newton um, had what, uh, what he identifies as his African Egypt, his African Egypt. Um, he was physically and emotionally abused by, um, by an African princess. He was captured, and he was he was made a slave uh, in that in that society. And that experience—he was released after he escaped after some 18 months. But that experience um, shaped his entire life. It haunted him. His words, every waking hour, a memory of such a traumatic experience that you're never. You're never away from it. Even the slaves, the other slaves, felt sorry for him looked down on him because of the way he was treated. And it was even etched, he asked to have it etched on his tombstone, Stone servant of slaves. It, it was a dominating theme in his life. Well, he, uh, he um, penned uh, perhaps the world's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And it was performed for the very first time in his church on the first day of January in 1773. And there was uh, a friend of his who was there that first day when it was sung, very first time. Didn't know how famous it would be. Uh, William William Cooper was there, and and he sang it that day. He's the one um, who. Um, late, later that very day, he wrote another of the hymns that's in our hymnal. Um, uh, uh, God moves in a mysterious way, and one of the lines in that hymn is, Behind his, a frowning providence is what? Do you remember? Behind a crowning providence hides a smiling face. And yet for William, he seldom sensed God's smile. It was mostly hidden for much of his life. And that very night, he tried to take his own life. Um, he was found before his life drained out of him. But he never again attended church. He had pout bouts of despair until the day he died. And the despair blinded him to the very truths of that song, that hymn, about which we sing, of which we sing. And that uh, the glorious truths of amazing grace. These are men, in many respects, we'd say godly men, who would struggle with getting this grace of God deep in their hearts. What do we learn from this song, what do we learn from them, what do we learn from seeing this song? You don't ever give up. Every day that you struggle. Every day that you are, are just going down or every time you speak to another person. Every day they have a choice. They always are at a crossroads. They can't call out to the Lord. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Uh, every day I call upon you, O oh Lord. But I, O Lord, cry to you." There is a repetition, and the psalmist still didn't give up. What do we often do? We may sit in silence, we may stew in our own juices, we may gain a gaze inward, Uh, we can look downward into the vortex of our own discouragement and even despair at times. We can do that, or we can cry out to God. There is a juxtaposition that the scripture holds. You can cry on your bed, and I take that to be the cry of self-pity, or you can cry out to God. Hosea speaks that way. Cry on your bed or cry out to God. There's always a choice. Now, the gorgeous thing about these psalms is that uh, you may not have the energy uh, to um, to put your pain into words. You may not know what to ask for. It's often hard to be honest about how you feel. In fact, some of us have been taught that it is, that emotions are, 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 are so dangerous you should avoid, uh, uh, just avoid recognizing them or acknowledging them as best you possibly can. Suppress them because they're dangerous. Well, it is certainly dangerous to indulge them and to give in to them. But the Psalms give us permission, in fact call us, consider the emotions that we're dealing with. The Lord gives us out of His kindness these words to to explain in unfiltered and unsanitized language the suffering that we're going through. He's helping you identify those battles that go on in your heart. God loves us enough to put words in our very mouths so you don't give up. It's not just that, though. Your prayers um, in the dark are more victorious than you may think. Your prayers, like this psalm, when there is no encouragement that he's getting from his life, the things that God is giving to him, no encouragement, and yet he continues to pray. And there's there's a tremendous victory in those prayers uttered in darkness. Remember Satan's view that in conversation with God concerning Job. No one serves you unless they're getting something back. He was he was devoted to that ideology. That's how he figured it. No one serves you in the silence of darkness. But people, when you do serve God without getting anything back immediately anyway, Satan is defeated by such faith. Don't give up. Keep praying. Don't be discouraged simply because God's not answering you as quickly as you would like. Which leads to the second point. Have realistic expectations. Don't demand to live life without pressure. Have realistic expectations about life. All the other psalms of lament end on a major chord. Uh, we, we opened up the service with Psalm 13, at which says, light up my eyes. Light up my eyes. I love that phrase. Light up my eyes. And later in the psalm, we see that God did that. He, he lightened his eyes and lifted his heart. And he, the psalmist became confident as he rejoiced in God's salvation. The question is, however, does God owe you that every day? Does he owe you that through all of your experiences? The psalmist, you see, has has no thought of the afterlife here. Uh, it is it is hazy at best, and death he sees as the end. And our expectations are always to be controlled. Our our desires are always to be restrained by the promise of what is to come, not by what we already have in our grasp. Our expectations are to be restrained by the promise, not just what is in our grasp today. I want to read a couple of verses of of Amazing Grace, uh, one of them I, I had never read before and, until I read this book, and I don't—it's certainly not in our Trinity hymnal. But, but this is how this is how um, John Newton managed his own expectations. Uh, yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. My life and joy and peace is later, he's saying. <laughs> Whispers now, glimmers now, but my life of expectation, my life of joy and peace is, is, is essentially and thoroughly later. And then he says, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. I'm waiting for the sun to melt, and then that joy and that peace will be mine forever, fully and forever. That's his hope. That is the reality of his hope. We, we get glimmers of that, my goodness, we do We celebrate it, and we love it, and we sing about it. It's delightful. But we also need to expect groaning. And we wait for our full adoption. We're not adopted yet. Not fully. We're waiting for that. that redemption of our bodies. And what we need to remember then is that your groaning and my groaning Is not evidence of God's displeasure. We remember God's steadfast love, especially in suffering. Don't give up. Have realistic expectations. And then, thirdly, your rejection is only apparent, it is not real. Those of you going through difficult times and you feel alone, your rejection. Is only apparent and not real. You may feel rejected, but you're not. You may feel like your life is a mistake, but it's not. Job teaches us that God's plan is is bigger and better than anything that we can possibly know. I've thought about that often. Would it have helped Job if he really if he came to realize that three, four thousand years later, people would still be telling his story? I want to be like Job. I want, to, I want to be able to, to praise God even in suffering. He's a he's a, he's a basic he's an essential part of the English human, the English language and the, the experience of Western Christianity. It's amazing. Would, he, would that have helped? I, I I guess it probably would. Have. All right, um, we're we're looking now we're looking now at uh, rejection not uh, being real, um, but but uh, instead uh, we have the security of the steadfast love of God. I want to look at an example in Hebrews thirteen, where it's an example where he says uh, the writer says to be content with whatever you have. In this case, it's a lack of money. Be content, whether or not you have money. And, and he says, keep your life free from the love of money.
1: And that is is—that is having it or not
0: isn't the point. It's, it's in either case you are to be free from the love of it. What I want you to focus on here is how is it even possible to be content with what you have? How is it even possible to be content even in suffering? How is that possible? You love God uh, because you have Him, and you have Him uh, to the fullest extent. He goes on to say, quoting then the the Lord God Himself, I will never leave you uh, nor forsake you, so you can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can men do to me. This is something that each one of us struggles with to some degree or other, in some circumstance or other, but the call is to let truth direct your feelings and not feelings direct or control your view of truth. To let truth direct your feelings and not your feelings direct or control your faith. God may seem distant. He may seem unmoved with what you're going through. He may seem unconcerned about the struggles that you have, but he's not. In the Valley of Vision, uh, Elaine Pollack drew this to my attention several years ago. In the Valley of Vision, one of the prayers has this line, uh, Lord, help me believe before I feel. Lord, help me believe before I feel. He will never turn away. In indifference, you can't. you can't turn away in indifference. Well, all right. So far, we've seen that the psalmist's experience is substantially different from our own as followers, as believers, and followers of Jesus. So the question still remains: that should we, at this point in redemptive history, sing this psalm? Should we? Should we put these words on our lips? Well, of course we must sing. The question is how. Remember, remember, remember that the Psalms are Jesus' words and Jesus' prayers before they are our ours. We must hear and know and put confidence in Jesus singing and reciting these words. This is Jesus' prayer before it is our own. Um, you or your depressed friend, however that works for you, um, will feel two things, one of two things about God, uh, either that God is angry or that God is absent, perhaps, perhaps it's both, but will feel God's anger or his absence. Uh, your friend uh, may see uh, death, as reasonable and sometimes even desirable. These are the realities of what we're living with. But most assuredly, Psalm 88 is not about your rejection. It is about Christ. Jesus fits this experience in the garden as he faces crucifixion. Hebrews puts it this way, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. This is Jesus. He could very well have been using these words, not just Psalm 22. Jesus entered darkness for you. He suffered the cause rejection for you. Imagine all of the, of the guilt and punishment of the sins of all of God's people. Think of those things of which you are most ashamed. Think of those things that you wonder yourself whether it's possible that they could truly be fully forgiven and, and multiply that by as many people as there are in, this, in the body of Christ. And God's wrath against all of that sin funneled down upon one hand for a period of three hours as the light went out. Jesus um, the man absorbed um, God's darkness and his wrath infinitely in that intense, compressed period of time. Look with me, look with me again, at the beginning of, uh, of verses four through seven of Psalm 88, uh, three through seven. Um, "For my soul. Now imagine Jesus saying this, "For my soul is full of troubles. my life." Draws near to shield. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. For they are cut off from your hand. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. God's steadfast love is declared as that tomb is opened, as Jesus emerges. And it is not possible. It is not possible for you to experience the wrath of God today. It is not possible. Jesus entered darkness for you and emerged victorious. But Jesus also enters darkness present He enters darkness now with you. He enters darkness with you. He, he knows what you're going through. More than that, he feels what you're going through. His heart embraces what you're going through. He, in the words of Hebrews, he sympathizes with you. Remember, his friends, too, shunned him. Perhaps his closest friend saying, I don't even know the God, and swears. He's here to walk with you, and it is not possible for him to walk away from you. So close is his heart knit to yours. A, a groom, a groom uh, will will not uh, depart his bride. Remember the words: "I will never leave you or forsake you." Some of us seem to have the idea that Jesus made up a prenup agreement when he signed on to us. That he can only take us for so long before his patience runs out. He can only deal with us us up to a point. Until we turn things around and, and make it up to him. And live in a way that is in keeping with his commands. Your relationship with Jesus does not ultimately depend on your faithfulness but on his. I want to conclude with thinking about uh, the, the, uh, the hymn Amazing Grace, and I want to tie, tie this together with a few of the stanzas, a few of the phrases from that, from that hymn. Amazing Grace, but listen to this, Amazing Grace did not cure John Newton until after he died, but Amazing Grace did carry him through everything life through Adam. Listen to this, through many trials, amazing grace carried him through many trials, many dangers, toils, and snares. Amazing grace enabled him to, uh, to live even as he struggled with doubts and he had to grasp promises. His word, my hope secures. Amazing grace gave him protection in spiritual battles. He will my shield and portion be. Amazing grace sustained him as he was aging and facing death, when this flesh and heart may fail. Amazing grace is what gave him hope for the recreation, earth shall soon dissolve like snow. And into eternity then, he can make this his prayer and his joyful hope a life of joy and peace. Let's pray, again. Lord Jesus. We uh, we thank you for um, your presence with us in our suffering. We thank you that though we may feel alone, or we may talk with people who feel alone, we may be assured we may assure others that that is not the case, that Jesus cannot leave us. He cannot forsake us. He must love us to the end. Lord, would you you, um, again, again and again, um, stir us with the amazing grace that carries us through this life until we see the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ directly face to face and peace and joy will be entirely ours for all time sustain us with that hope let us not give up let us not be unrealistic about our lives let us not think that we have been rejected but let us see Jesus in his glorious name we pray. Amen.